The title of my sermon this morning is Embassy Under Fire. To speak of being under fire is a way of describing conflict. This brings me to the first point of today's message, number one on your outlines, the spiritual conflict. Today we will be studying the book of Acts and we'll be studying the Gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts are both written by the historical figure Luke, who was a part of the eyewitness community of Jesus. We're going to begin in the Gospel of Luke, so if you would turn to the 11th chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So again, this historical figure Luke, he, he wrote Luke Acts. Luke Acts, these two books are meant to be read together as a series in our uh, ordering of, of the text, in, in our common New Testament ordering. They are, uh, they are interrupted by the Gospel of John. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, but Luke Acts were meant to be read together. They, they were meant to be read side by side. These, these two books present to us the historical Jesus in volume one, Luke, and then there's a transition as you get to the end of the Gospel of Luke and move into the book of Acts where we read about the historical followers of Jesus of Nazareth and the beginnings of what we call the church, which is what we are a part of today. So Acts gives us the origins of the church, tying them to the historical resurrected Jesus who ascends. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we, we see who this historical figure Jesus is all about. So you, you want to read these together at some point in your life, just move from Luke and, and just go straight into Acts and, and read it together. And this morning, we're, we're going to do a little bit out of each for purposes of studying the spiritual conflict. So Luke chapter 11, we're going to see a conflict in the text. We're going to see, a, a, in fact, specifically a demonic conflict in the text. It's, the, it's October. It's October. Uh, October's almost over. The big holiday of the month is Halloween. And in our culture, this holiday is celebrated in a variety of ways, but most notably, we see an emphasis on darkness. We see haunted houses. We see images of death. People decorate their homes with skeletons and ghosts and all sorts of things that symbolize darkness. Some go to the extreme and have blood and tombstones and uh, demons. There's a guy on my block that goes hard every year. It's like, oh, okay, all right, you know. And many, you know, view it as harmless or whatever. And you know, folks rationalize it. You know, it's just, it's just fun. You know, none of this stuff is real anyway. Like ghosts and stuff. That's not like real. So we're just having fun because that stuff's not real to them. But is it harmless? A more pointed question is: Is there such a thing as forces of darkness? Are there such things as ghosts and spirits and, more specifically, demons? We are turning to Luke chapter 11, and the text will answer uh, a question here for us. Today we're going to be doing a little study on demons and demonology. We're going to be looking at demonic conflict, which our Lord confronted, and which His followers in this age must also confront. In my last two sermons, I've been building on the biblical language of ambassadorship, and the related imagery of embassy that the Scripture uses to portray the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Delray Church, we've gathered this morning, and there's a, a, a sense in which we are an embassy of God's kingdom to come. We, we have been called ambassadors by His Word. And so, in the last couple of weeks, we've been studying that and the ramifications of that, and I'm building on that this morning. So, by way of introduction, let me briefly revisit this language of ambassadorship and imagery of embassy as we continue along in this series trying to understand this church as embassy. An embassy is a place in a given land that represents a foreign land. It has a body of diplomatic representatives known as ambassadors from that foreign land who are sent to work and to represent their nation in that foreign land. Though the embassy is in a foreign land, there is a sense in which when you walk into the embassy, you're standing in the nation that it represents. You walk into that, that little embassy and, and you, have, you have now, in a sense, stepped into that foreign land. That said, the Church of Jesus Christ, as we've gathered, we're, we're an embassy of a foreign land. Look around you. We are representing the kingdom of God that is to come. And, and we... Followers of Jesus, Delray Church, we are His ambassadors that have been stationed here for diplomatic engagement in this foreign land that we call Los Angeles, and more broadly, California, and more broadly, the United States to the ends of the earth. Embassies engaging in work in foreign lands often experience conflict. 
Recall this year in 2022, in January, in, in Baghdad. You remember the news in January? There was a rocket attack directed against the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad that resulted in a child and a, and a woman being wounded. It, it had been going on for quite a while, if you recall. I know, I know 2019 to tw you know, 2022 is all a blur or whatever, but January 2020, uh, the killing of Iran's general and the Iraqi uh, militia commander uh, in a U.S. drone attack, if you remember January 2020, the embassy started being targeted right after that with repeated rocket attacks. The one in January this year was, was quite scary. Watching it in the news, I can't imagine even being there as this embassy is under fire in a series of aerial attacks uh, amid Iranian threats and political violence as Iraq's factions were struggling to form a new government. Terrorists impaled rockets at the U.S. Embassy, which is uh, in a heavily fortified area known as the Green Zone. Three of the missiles struck within the perimeter of the U.S. Embassy, and a fourth one hit a school nearby, which injured the aforementioned woman and child. The attack shook up the embassy and our government, leading the ambassadors and workers to evacuate. We're under fire. we got to get out of here. We're out. Destroy all of our stuff, and let's get out. Let's get back home. The thought of being stationed in an embassy facing fire and terror is a good illustration of another facet of our understanding of our calling as ambassadors of Jesus in this city and in this world. As his embassy, we are under constant fire by forces of darkness. So part of our understanding of our calling as ambassadors involves an understanding of some basic demonology. And while I understand that our United States ambassadors, I, I, I totally understand, get out of the green zone, you're under fire, let's get you home, let's get you home safe, let, let me say this. As a church, as an embassy, we must resist the temptation to run. Further, we must not let fear or frustration take over our hearts, for our Lord is our peace and our protection. In our public reading of Scripture this morning, uh, which is important, and I encourage you, come to church on time. The public reading of Scripture just sets the stage. We read from Psalm 91, and it's all about that, that peace and that protection that God provides in the, in the face of enemies. We, we need that peace. We need to be aware of His protection lest we, lest we run from our embassy that has been given to us and lest, lest we forget what we've been called to do as ambassadors. Lest we forget the power of, of our Lord to protect us, His people. Which brings us to the next point on the outline, Christ as exorcist. And it brings us to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And let's jump right into the text at verse 14. It begins, Jesus is casting out a demon. You see that in verse 14? He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out of the mute man, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, the text says. We see inside of these historical accounts from the eyewitness community of, of Jesus of Nazareth that he was indeed a bona fide exorcist. Of course, we should expect this. After all, he is God in the flesh. We, we worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. This, this God created the world. This God created humanity to know His love and to image Him. Humanity rebelled against Him. The giver of life, this loving Creator, humanity rebelled against Him. And the consequence of rebelling against the One who gives you life, life is taken back. And so humanity in its rebellion then now faces disease and death and dysfunction and, and darkness overwhelms the good creation of a loving God. And as a result, chaos has ensued ever since. But God in His mercy, God in His grace, had a, had a plan from the very beginning. You see, the Father would send the Son. Again, one God who's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sends the Son, and the Son steps into the chaos. The eternal Son steps into the chaos and becomes one of the members of the rebel army, albeit without rebellion in His heart. He becomes a human. And He lives a perfect life. He lives a perfect life that we have not lived in order to give us His perfect record in exchange for our guilt and shame. And that, friends, is what we call the Gospel. It is good news. When He died on the cross of Calvary, He was propitiating. He was expiating. He was taking the wrath that we deserve as a consequence of rebelling against the Creator. He was taking that and giving His life in exchange for us as a substitute, as a sacrifice. 
And through that sacrifice, we can be justified with God. We can be declared what we are not, holy and innocent. That's what we are not. We are guilty and sinful, but He declares us, He justifies us as holy and innocent by the work of the Son. And this Son is the Jesus of Nazareth. This is who we are reading about. He's an exorcist. Of course He is. He's God. He's God. He has all power. He has all power of the universe. Everything that He does, He's God. And so the, the people in the passage in verse 14, they're, they're witnessing this. They're not totally aware exactly who he is, but they see through exorcism, oh, this guy has power, and, and they're amazed. Now, mind you, the author of the text, the historic Luke, is a medical physician. He's a medical physician. He would be able to discern the difference between a biological or mental condition as opposed to a supernatural ailment like demon possession. In this case, the man's mutinous... Is, is an important detail, and Luke likes to record uh, little medical details along the way, if you're familiar with his writings. He, he writes about this man's muteness, and the physician Luke tells us that this muteness was not caused by a physical injury or a condition, like apraxia, which is a, a medical problems that are related to the coordination of muscles that are involved in speech. This isn't apraxia, this is, this is daimonia, this is demonic. This man has a demon. Apparently, there was a visible manifestation of the deliverance which made it very clear to those who were there watching. The crowds are amazed, the text says. Look back at the text, verse 15. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, others, verse 16, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And here you see the, re the rebellion that I'm talking about in humanity. You're, you're standing in the presence of God, and you want to test him? You, 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 you ought to worship him. You ought to, you ought to fall at his feet and, 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 and plead for his mercy. But you want to test him. That's what you want to do? Yeah, that, that's what we do. That's what we fallen humans do in the presence of God. We want to test him. We want to reject him. We want to, we want to find a way around him. We want to stand above him. That, that's what we would do if left to our own devices. And that's why we need the Gospel. That's why we need one who stands in our place. That's why we need Jesus of Nazareth to hang on the cross of Calvary and rise up from the dead and send the Spirit to open our eyes to see Him because otherwise we would be left testing Him. What's this Beelzebub nonsense? I was... I was uh, Born in the 70s and, you know, raised in the 80s and 90s, so, you know, when I read this, I can't help but to think about Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beelzebub, Beetlejuice. Uh, what, what's going on here? Beelzebub is a pagan god that the Jewish community, um, the Hebrews, they, they use Beelzebub uh, because it was a pagan god. They used that name of this pagan god as, as a name for Satan or the devil, the prince of demons of darkness, Beelzebub. It's sort of politically incorrect when you think about it. They took the name of a god from another religion, and then they used that for the name of Satan in their religion. That's not, you know, probably politically correct, you know. If we called um, um, Satan Allah or something, you know, right, people would be like, hey, you can't, you can't do that. You know, they're like, we just did, Beelzebub, right? Uh, the fact is, uh, all of that said, Satan is behind all false religion. So it is actually theologically appropriate, albeit it might be politically in, in, incorrect, but it is theologically appropriate to take a name of a pagan god and apply it to the devil because that's exactly what the devil does. The pundits in this context are accusing Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Satan. Uh, uh, and, and of course, in this rebellion that I was sharing with you about, the Creator who, who makes humanity, who loves humanity, and humanity turns and rebels against Him, that, that rebellion wasn't just a human rebellion. There were forces of darkness involved in that. There's a, a serpent, Satan, who's involved in that, who, who leads humanity in that rebellion, who sets the booby trap, who lies to humanity. And so that rebellion isn't just anthropological. It's angelological. Demons are fallen angels. Angels were involved in the rebellion. Humanity is involved in the rebellion. And hence, creation is in chaos and under a curse. But God has stepped in. And God has all power. And God has all knowledge. That's exactly what we see in verse 17. Draw your eyes at the text. But He knew their thoughts. Of course He knows their thoughts. He's God. 
He knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid in waste, and a house that is divided falls. If, if, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So, that, so they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God. The very kingdom that we are ambassadors for. The very embassy here at Delray Church. The kingdom come that we're representing. Now Jesus responds to these, these, these ones who want to test Him. And He says Satan doesn't drive out demons because demons are his friends. A kingdom divided cannot stand. If Satan is running around doing exorcisms, he's not going to get far. That, that, that's dumb. It'd be like, you know, having a tag team in wrestling, you know, tag team in the ring, and you smack each other's hands, and you take turn fighting the, the other team. If, if, if the two guys on the one team, Junkyard Dog and whoever, right, and Hulk Hogan, if they start hitting each other with two-by-fours, that's dumb. You're on the same team to beat that team. Why would you be attacking your team members? You're supposed to be out there beating the other team. That doesn't even make sense if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub because Beelzebub and demons are on the same team. You guys are dumb. That whole, that, that's just dumb. So he's just, you know, in front of everyone going, that's dumb. Verse 21. He continues showing them how dumb they are. When a strong man who is fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Right? We, you know, uh, this is America. we got a Second Amendment. We, we've probably got a, a lot of guns represented in this room. Uh, you know, there's certain men in the church I wouldn't want to try and break into their houses. There could be grenades and all kinds, flashbangs, all kinds of stuff. When you got a strong dude who's fully armed, who's guarding his house, He's got Rottweilers and everything. You, I, you know, I'm going to go to the next. I'm going to go to the next house. In fact, in fact, when I worked for the police and I was, uh, you know, took took hundreds of, of home burglary reports, uh, I I never I never took a home burglary report on a house that had a big dog in the back. Um, it's just common knowledge. You know, bad guys are like. Mm, I'll go, to the, I'll go to the house with the little chihuahua or the fish tank or the hamsters or whatever, and I'm just going to climb in through the window and take some stuff, and I'm out. You know, you don't attack a strong house with animals and dudes with guns and stuff. You don't do that. Follow Jesus' logic, verse 22. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, because I, I'm stronger than Satan. I punk Satan. Like a burglar who breaks into a house and ties the homeowner down and takes all of his stuff in front of him and, and you know, shoots his dog and, you know, just takes all of his stuff, right? Jesus comes in and overpowers Satan. I'm stronger than you. I'll, I'll tie you down. I'll take all your stuff. I'm stronger than you. Follow the illustration. Jesus enters Satan's house and totally humiliates him and jacks him. Satan's house is the world. Jesus had an encounter with Satan uh, earlier in the text of Luke. We, we don't have time to go back to it, but you may recall when he was in the wilderness and, and, and he, he, he shows the, de the devil's impotent against him. Satan can tempt him all he wants, but it does nothing to Jesus. Jesus wins. He's stronger. His little pinky finger, he's stronger. Mind you, this is not a mere display of strength. Jesus enters the world and does what our forefather Adam did not do. Jesus takes dominion over Satan. Recall, recall that our mother and father, this rebellion that I've been talking about, they, they were commanded by God to take dominion over the creation. The kingdom of darkness had invaded it. You take dominion. Dominion you know, is expressing hostile forces, you see. Our mother and father succumbed to that. They did not take dominion. Behold the second Adam who has come, and he takes dominion over the darkness. So, the pundits claim Jesus is doing exorcisms by Satan's power, and Jesus said, yeah, no, nah, bro, that's not the case. Why would I use his power 
when I'm stronger than him, right? Well, you know, Kimbo Slice, the notorious backyard brawler, doesn't need Richard Simmons to, to win a match. You know, I'm going to harness the power of Richard Simmons. That, that would be a crazy uh, celebrity death match, right? Kimbo Slice and Richard Simmons. But look at what the text says, verse 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Okay, help me with that one, Pastor Matt. What's going on? Uh, demons and waters and what, what's going on? Well, demons are often associated with waterless places like deserts. Recall that Jesus encountered Satan in the desert, the wilderness. Deserts, wilderness, is waterless, which is to say they are devoid of rain, which is rain believed to be a blessing from God. The, the desert is the opposite of Eden. It's the opposite of paradise. It's the opposite of blessing. The demons are at home, however, in the desert, where the blessing of God is absent. No crops, no rain. They like it like that. So a demon or an unclean spirit, when it is sent out of a human by an exorcist, it then looks for a place to go, waterless places. And if that demon finds nothing, he'll come home again to the human host that the demon once possessed. He'll, he'll just come back. i got nowhere else to go. I'm just going to come back. It's, it's I, you know, I could tell, I'm thinking of millennial jokes and kids who just keep coming back home, right? And it's like, when are you going to go get a job? You just keep on coming back, right? And when it comes, verse 25, it finds it swept and put in order. And then, verse 26, it goes and it takes along with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in, they live there, and the last day of that man becomes worse than the first. They bring their friends in. You know, hey, mom and dad, uh, you know, I know I'm 30 and, you know, I, I, I don't have a job, but, you know, my Fortnite scores are off the chain. You know, can my friends come too? You know, they're just playing video games, ruining the house. The people charged Jesus with darkness, but Jesus says it the other way around. Jesus casts out demons and you guys invite them back. Jesus, Jesus is an exorcist and, and you guys, you guys just keep letting them on back in. They find no place to go, but they come back and they have an open door, a cozy couch, a beer and a remote and some popcorn, and can I get you anything else? You guys just keep on bringing them back. And they bring their friends along, friends who are darker spirits, and, and, and things just worsen. Here's the deal, though. Jesus is Lord over darkness. Jesus punks Satan. Jesus walks in the house, and he sees the stronger ones, and he just puts the smack down on all of them. He just beats them all up. He hog times them all and just kicks them out. You get out of here, boom. He, he takes the controllers, he takes the, their beverage, he knocks their TV over and says, you get out, you, you get out. And he taught his followers to do the very same thing. In Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus passing powers of exorcism to his followers. Look at the text. He goes on the mountain, he summoned those to himself that he wanted, that came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and they could send them out to preach. And to what? To what? 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 Have authority to cast out demons? I mean, I, you know, I know he sent them out to preach and stuff, but yeah, yeah, he, he gave them authority to cast out demons too. I want you to preach, and I want you to go punk the kingdom of darkness. You're, you're my ambassadors in a foreign land. The embassy should be a place that never gets overthrown. Where, where rockets are hurled our way, we're going to be under fire, but we have power over the fire. And that's exactly what Jesus' followers did. That is exactly what we see the apostles doing. But Pastor Matt, they're apostles, right? And like apostles, that was like a, a specific office in the first century, and like we don't have those today. Granted, on TBN and weird corners of, you know, church, uh, there are people who call themselves apostles, but, you know, that, that, was, that was back then. We don't do that today. No, 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 the apostles taught the disciples to, to keep doing this, to keep casting out the darkness, which leads to the next point on the outline, confronting evil. So we see the church's embassy, Christ is exorcist, and we see that we're, we have a calling to confront evil. In the writings of the apostles, we see them charging the church, so, so it wasn't just their duty, they're, they're charging their disciples and the disciples of the disciples and the disciples of the disciples' disciples to go and engage in what we call spiritual warfare. So for example, you have a cross-reference on your outline of Ephesians 6 
And in this passage, we see the Apostle Paul charging the church in Ephesus to suit up for battle with the full armor of God. He uses military imagery. Let me put it in front of you here. Here, you see Ephesians 6 up here? He uses military imagery. He's talking about putting on a bulletproof vest, throw on your Kevlar, get your, get your gats, let's, let's do this. And you stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle, Ephesian embassy, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and powers. Those are terms for demonic forces. It's against world forces in the darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In heavenly places. You see, in the worldview of Scripture, the heavens, the immaterial realm, is all around us. It's all around us. There's, there's a war that rages all around us, and if you open your eyes to see, you can see. In fact, there's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the prophet Elisha is, is in the midst of... There's a, there's a military conflict go, going along with the Syrian army, and Elisha is there with his, his homie, and his homie's panicked. He's like, we're, we're, we're about to lose, we're going to die, or whatever. And Elisha prays for his eyes to be open. And God opens the, the, the eyes of the guy, and the guy looks around, and he sees the heavenly host all around him. He, like, the dimension, this immaterial dimension that I'm saying is all around us, that you can't see with your cornea, with your eye, it's there, and he opens his eyes, God does to his, Elisha's servant, his buddy, and he goes, oh, okay, yeah, everything's under control. Yeah, we're, we're, we're winning, we're winning, we are winning this. There are, Ephesians 6, spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places that are overlapping with the earth. There is a war that is raging, Delray Church, and we are, in a sense, behind enemy lines as this embassy. We are, Delray Church, an outpost of the kingdom to come, placed in a fallen and evil world. Again, Jesus, the exorcist, wanted his disciples to confront evil, and his disciples wanted their disciples to do the same as we can see in texts like Ephesians 6. As well, we're going to see in the book of Acts, this history book of the church, this Luke-Acts, and so now would you move in your Bibles to the right and find your way to the book of Acts. Or if you're on a tablet or whatever, get your, get your scroll on and find your way to Acts chapter 16. Here we're going to see the church in Acts chapter 16 under fire. We're going to see the church as an exorcist embassy. We see ambassadors of Jesus using their diplomatic powers against spiritual forces of wickedness. And so now let us move from point one, the spiritual conflict, to point two, the saint's charge. Acts 16, verse 16. Draw your eyes at the text. It happened, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by her fortune-telling. So, so there's a, a girl who's a fortune-teller. Dion Warwick and her psychic friends. Remember that, right? So, so they're, they're, they're cruising around, the disciples, they're going, they're, they're being ambassadors, they're representing the embassy of the kingdom, they're, they're bringing the gospel, right? They're cruising, they're on their way to a place to pray. They come in contact with this slave girl. The word girl in the Greek here indicates that she's fairly young. The, 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 the English text uh, notes that she has a spirit of divination. What, what does that mean? Does the original language help us understand what a spirit of divination is? Yeah, in, in the Greek it's actually quite interesting. If, if, I, if I were to translate it from the original language to our language, I would render it something like, not a, not a spirit of divination, but I would render it a python spirit. Because that's literally what it says. Or a spirit of a pythoness. It's feminine. Now the pythoness stood behind the Greek oracles. If you remember, you know, Greco-Roman uh, literature in, in school, maybe you had to read some of that. Behind the Greek oracles, the pythoness stood. The Delphonic oracle of Apollo, the priestess, was called the pythoness. During the Greco-Roman era, which our New Testament is, you know, woven into, people would travel quite a ways to consult the priestess of Apollo, known as the Pythia, the Pythoness. The Pythia were the ones who the spirits of the underworld possessed. It was believed that the spirits spoke to them, talked to them. And in the Jewish culture, the python or the snake is, of course, a symbol of evil. We think of Satan 
who's described as a serpent in Genesis. Satan, who's pictured as a serpent in Revelation 22. The image of the python was a symbol of evil today. You think of the Harry Potter film with the giant python that's possessing people in, in the darkness. It's a powerful darkness. Uh, or they, they've got the reboot of Karate Kid, you know, uh, Cobra Kai, you know. You, you see Cobra Kai and you know, oh, those are the good kids, you know. No, they're punching you in the face and taking your lunch and breaking your legs. Put them in a body bag, Johnny. Like the cobra, the snake, symbol of bad guys. That brings us to A on the outline. The saints charge the darkness. So she has the ability to fortune tell, the text says. She's a worker of magic with a K. There is the Disney song, Do You Believe in Magic? Right? But that's magic with a C. This is magic with a K. And magic with a K is dark magic. These aren't card tricks. This is the real deal. Sure, some lady with a crystal ball might be making lucky guesses or whatever, but there is someone who's actually doing it the real deal. And they're tapping into powers that are beyond the material world. They're in that overlap with the immaterial. They've tapped into dark forces. We have mediums in our culture today. People like John Edward, whose syndicated show Crossing Over played on 180 television stations covering 98% of our country. That medium, Sylvia Brown, uh, who used to be on the Montel Williams show, who communicates with spirits and the dead on television and writes books. Our culture is fascinated with this stuff. Larry King has had mediums on his show. We have movies like The Sixth Sense, right, where a boy communicates with dead spirits. There was a recent Gallup poll that showed that about 40% of our, of our country, Americans, believe in ghosts and spirits. I think we take for granted that dark forces are at work in our culture. Demons are in the earth, and humans regularly open themselves up to them. Verse 17, following after Paul and us, the Pythoness kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Oh, this is getting really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's the Bible. There's all kinds of cool stuff in it. So the Pythoness sees the Apostle Paul and starts freaking out, starts uh, crying out, these are, these are the, the, the servants of, of the Most High. Uh, we see this in historical accounts, by the way. Demons recognizing Jesus. They know who he is when they see him. Demons rec recognizing his disciples. G demons even recognizing wannabe disciples who are posing as disciples. And they're like, oh yeah, you're, you're not the real, so we can punk you. Oh, we better stay away from those guys because they really are disciples. So the demons are, are watching and observing and they're aware of who's who in some cases. It's interesting to note Luke's choice of words here. The Pythoness is called a slave. Paul and his buddies are called bond servants, literally slaves. So you have a bit of a play on words here. Here's a slave of the darkness. Here's a slave of the light. Slaves of the enemy, slaves of God. Jesus said, either you are for me or against me, we saw in Luke. There is no fence position. You are a slave of God or a slave of the darkness. Either, either God is your master or the devil is your master. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus spoke of those who opposed his message as having Satan as their father. The slave girl recognizes them as being different. She speaks of the Most High God. Now, this is a common designation for God inside of the Hebrew Scripture, the Most High God. That said, in pagan cultures, there was also a concept of the Most High God. An henotheism, where you have all these gods, but there's one who's sort of uh, above them or stronger than some of the other ones. And so it's not entirely clear whether she's uh, noting in terms of like the Hebrew Bible, Most High God, or a henotheistic pagan concept of the Most High. But what is interesting here is that demons are watching and they're learning. They're looking around from the immaterial realm into our material realm and they're learning things. Now follow me on a quick sidebar from Acts here to make a point about demons watching and learning. There are angels and demons all around. Second Kings, I referenced it, chapter 6, opens the eyes, they see. They're, they're all around. The, the angels and demons are not all-knowing. They're limited creatures just like humans. And because they're limited, they have to learn things. Uh, they have to learn English in order to understand what we're saying if they want to watch us. They have to learn Chinese if they want to watch Chinese people 
talking. They, they have to learn languages. They have to watch. They have to observe. They have to study. They're not all-knowing beings. The demon and the slave girl is, is looking around and is making sense. Oh, yeah, I recognize those guys. Um, I, yeah, I recognize those guys. You see, the demon is making sense out of things and is learning things, watching the ambassadors to learn what's going on at the embassy. They, they visit the embassy, in fact, to find out information. This, this point is, is, clear. is clear in texts like Ephesians 3. Uh, follow me. Ephesians 3 indicates that angels learn by watching the church. Ephesians, I'll put it in front of you so you can see. In, in chapter 3, verse 10 here, the recipients are angelic hosts in the heavenly realms. These rulers and authorities here in, in Ephesians 3 refer to both good and evil angels. It's very clear in Ephesians 6.12, which we saw earlier. The angelic hosts of fallen and holy angels watch the church to acquire information. Again, they're not all-knowing, so we shouldn't be surprised that they learn from watching and listening the church, especially fallen angels who've been exiled from heaven. Outside of Ephesians, which you have in front of you, the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. When Paul admonished the Corinthian women in 1 Corinthians 11 to show submission to their husbands through the custom of long hair, and, and he reinforced the command by saying that he was given this, and I quote 1 Corinthians 11.10, because of the angels. There's angels watching. And he says, you know that, right? There's angels watching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he talks about, the Apostle Paul, the rulers of this age, which is a term for angels, and there in 1 Corinthians 2, he, he talks about how they did not understand these angels, God's purposes in the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. The, the demons are watching the crucifixion thinking, yeah, we won. And little did they know that was what God had ordained before the foundations of the world to accomplish for the salvation of his people. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle Paul describes the cross as making a spectacle of the demons, the rulers and authorities. It seems these fallen angels were entirely caught off guard by the cross of Calvary. They, 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 they thought that they had won the day. Recall that they possessed Judas. They had an insider. They had an insider the whole time among the first ambassadors being trained, but they were watching through Judas and not understanding what was going on because they're not all-knowing. They're limited. They have blind spots. A final verse of interest on this kind of sidebar here. Um, it, it, it is to the question about angels learning and watching the church is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Write it down, look it up. 1 Peter 1, 12 has this clause, and I quote, things into which angels long to look. And in the context of Peter, he's describing preaching. That angels long to look, and they listen to sermons even to understand what's going on. Think about it. The embassy right now, this embassy right now, could have foreign spirits listening to try to get intel to use it against Christ's church. Hence the title this morning. We are an embassy under fire. Okay, back to the book of Acts, verse 18. She continued doing this for many days, the Pythoness, and Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the Pythoness spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. I, I like the wording here. He's annoyed. He, he's not running from it. He's not scared. He's, he's annoyed. He stares darkness in the face. He does not cower down. Uh, when I was 16, I had a gun pulled on me. I thought, that was, I, I, thought it was, I was about to be out. You know, I had a straight-up gun. This dude was mad at me. Uh, it was at a club. I used to rap. I embarrassed him. He wasn't feeling good about it, so he caught me outside the club put a gun right in my face, and I thought, man, uh, I'll, I'll stop rapping and humiliating you, but now you're just going to kill me. And anyway, I was scared to death, froze, and one of my friends jumped in this guy's face and took it, and it was like, I'll, I thank God for this guy for the rest of my life, because I was scared to death. I was froze. I was scared. My friend, however, uh, apparently has had experience with guns being pulled on him. He just jumped in, super annoyed, slapped the guy around. Woo! He saved my life, right? Paul... Paul has a gun to his face. He's not scared. He's experienced. He knows what he's doing. He's done this before. 
He's done this before. I, I'm, I'm not scared of the darkness. It's, it's, frankly, it's just annoying to me. So let me, let me cast it out. In the name of, that speaks of authority. Stop, in the name of the law. When you work for the police, you can, you can do that. You can stop people in the name of the law. Now, if you don't have that authority, you can't. I can't pull people over. I can't do that. Roll my window down. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Doug Woodhams can, you know. He can. I can't. I can't do it. I don't have that authority. You see, you have different authorities that are given to you in, in life. I don't, I don't have the authority to operate on people. That would be scary, right? I don't, I don't have that authority. I've been given the authority to teach God's Word. Church, you've been given authority over the kingdom of darkness. Just wrap yourself around that. Christ took civilians and made them officers, made them diplomats, made them ambassadors, gave them authority. Like diplomats and ambassadors of an embassy, you, you have authority to represent him. Recall the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to go and make disciples. What did he preface it with? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. His authority has been passed on to his church. The disciples, therefore, went in the authority and the power of Jesus. They can exercise demons in his name. It's in his name. It's not their power. It was the power of Christ. Notice when Christ exercised demons, he doesn't say, in the name of Jesus. He's just Jesus. He doesn't have to do in the name of Jesus. He's Jesus. He just casts them out. But his followers do so in his name because it's not their power. It's not their authority. It's been given to them by him. It's interesting to me that in the name of Jesus was their power. And in our culture, the name of Jesus is mocked. Right? When, when, so, when someone curses, who do they curse? Jesus, God, right? You, you know, I've, I've never heard anyone stub their toe and Buddha, you know, uh, BD, you know, uh, but I hear GD all the time. Anyway, back to the text. The passage says the demon came out immediately. This is awesome. Immediate action. And that said, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it takes time. For example, in Matthew chapter 17, 21, if you're taking notes, after doing an exorcism, Jesus taught his disciples this. He said, uh, sometimes they, they don't go out like that. Sometimes it does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Sometimes it takes time. The apostles, the disciples, don't have unlimited power. Sometimes it takes time. I think of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the devil preventing the church from advancing. You recall this text? We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So, so with this in mind, we must remember that, that Jesus said, Jesus actually promised, Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's a quote from Jesus. Evil can press back against the embassy of the kingdom. Sooner or later, we shall overcome. Sooner or later, we shall overcome. Sometimes it's immediate. She goes right out and acts. Sometimes it takes time. But it is never without a fight. Which brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from the darkness, A, to B, the drama. Look at verse 19. When the masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Drama. They're upset. Why are they upset? I mean, it's... You know, this girl's life has changed. You should be happy about it. Well, they're not happy about it because the girl was making them money. They were pimping her out. So you're, you're messing with my cash flow. I'm, we're trying to be big pimping, spending the G's, and you just uh, delivered her. I'm not excited about that. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, from drama, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So it gets a little, it gets a little racial there. It gets a little ethnic there, you know. This is like, these Jews over here, you know, we're Romans, right? You see this, the socio-cultural kind of ethnic tension. We're above them. They're coming in here, you know, messing with our, our ways, imposing their religion on us. The chief magistrates were Roman officials in charge of the civic activity for the various areas in the Roman Empire. They're like judges who make decisions on matters. Magistrates, right? 
the owners of this slave girl in the town take it to the magistrates, to these judges. And what is their claim? These foreigners are messing with our Roman ways. Now, of course, that's just an excuse because it wasn't about culture. It was about economy. They were messing with their cash flow. And like our cancel culture today, in which we have a bipolarized right and left, and both of them will use their powers to shut down and silence the other, just like today, so too these men are so threatened, so they're going to use force to cancel the Lord's servants. Good luck with that. But like I said, it's often not without a fight. So the drama moves to detention. Look at verse 22. They get beaten with rods. Look at verse 23, more, more beatdowns. They're getting, just getting tossed around, verse 22, 23. Verse, verse 24, they're thrown in detention. They're placed in jail. So they get beat up. It's humiliating. It's a public beating. It's one thing to take a beating in a corner and no one's looking. But to get beat up in front, in front of a bunch of people just makes it worse. I, I, I don't know if you've been to a, 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 in a street fight before. It, it's just not fun, especially if you're taking hits in front of everybody, especially in this age where everybody got a cell phone and they can just post it online, and for the rest of your life, you're that kid who got beat up, right? There's no Larry H. Parker to help you. It's just mob justice. It's madness. And behind it all are forces of wickedness and darkness. This is demonic. It, is easy, it, it's, it should be easy for us to see how demonic this is. Now that said, one of the challenges that we have today is it's not easy for people to see the demonic dimension because there's so much skepticism in our culture. In fact, I think, I think it's invaded the lives of many believers. And they, they just live their life as though there's not angels and demons all around them. And stuff happens and they're not taking authority. Stuff happens and they don't have the armor of God on. They're not looking at the world and seeing this, they're like Elisha's servant who, who doesn't see. And so you might be panicked on one extreme or on the other extreme, you're just couch surfing. You don't, you don't see it. We shouldn't be surprised that people don't see it. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that the devil disguises himself. He disguises himself even, even as an angel of light. This is one of the reasons why uh, with false religions like Mormonism and claims of, well, an angel, Moroni, came to me and told me that this is the, the truth. And you're like, yeah, but angels telling you things, that's, uh, uh, you know, the devil, like, he likes to put on a costume and be an angel and do that sort of thing. He blinds people from seeing. I, I, I see this in, in our culture so much. And I, 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 you see, you know, darkness and you see people stepping into the darkness and doing dark things. And then, and, and, and then in the culture, like, if, if we say something about Jesus or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, you guys are, like, you believe that? You believe Noah's Ark? You believe whatever? I'm like, you read tarot cards. What are you talking to me about, you know? I got this 2,000-year-old book that has all these manuscripts and evidence for it, and you're playing with, like, Ouija boards and tarot cards, and, you know, you, you got Eckhart Tolle. You, like, that's the authority of your life? Get out of here. There was a popular interview on Oprah Winfrey of the woman Esther Hicks. You can go on YouTube later today. Oprah, Esther Hicks. Esther Hicks channels a demon named Abraham. Channels a demon named Abraham. Channeling is communication with the spirit world, if you're not hip on the, on the lingo there. And you could go on YouTube and you could see it. And it's, it's interesting because the world is skeptical when a Christian says something about angels or something, but, you know, when Esther Hicks is doing it, like, oh, well, Oprah said, it's got to be, you know, Oprah said, it's got to be true. But there is something that is going on on Oprah and Esther Hicks, and we are culturally inoculated from seeing these things. As Christians, we believe in the power of darkness. We believe in personal beings, and we, we, we ought to act like it. Of course, Oprah would prefer to use the word spirit, but the fact of the matter is it's, that is an unclean spirit. That is a demon that you are channeling. The politically correct police would want to take issue with us. They would say, well, that's her religion and, and you're demonizing it. But to this, I would respond, that is a fair accusation. I am. Because the fact is, demons take advantage of people's worship of their false gods and false religion. Furthermore, I'd ask the PC police, what if it's true? Because friends, that is the issue. I will concede the point that it is politically incorrect to call another religion false, but if I am correct, though, what? 
And what if I'm correct in saying that such falsities are not mere constructions of humans, but they were birthed in the boardroom of Satan's corporate offices, and that he is still birthing them, and he is still in big business? On this note of being still open for business, it's important that you understand demonic activity is not a thing of the past. It's not something that happened in those Bible days. Evil is still with us. Uh, evil is still with us. Evil is very real. Darkness is very real. Demons are very real, friends. We live in an age that prides itself on being scientific. And so people will act like they don't believe in demons, and yet it, this is very real. There was a medical doctor, Dr. Scott Peck. He graduated from Harvard and Case Western University. He's done fascinating research into this, into this field. Dr. Peck was raised in, in a secular home without religion. In his medical practice in psychiatry, he came to believe, however, in the existence of demons. He worked professionally as a chief of psychology at the Army Medical Center in Japan and assistant chief of psychiatry and neurology in the office of the Surgeon General in Washington. Dr. Peck became involved in a case of a patient who was possessed by demons, and he did so initially to prove the devil's non-existence as scientifically as possible. And yet he became convinced in the process that demonization was very real and that scientifically we can document this. In 1983, he wrote a book, People of the Lie, which took a medical look into the face of evil. In chapter one of this book, entitled Of Possession and Exorcism, he explored the possibility that the devil and smaller demonic spirits could entrench themselves inside of human souls. The chapter briefly described two clients who Peck believed were under the possession of the devil, and ultimately he performed an exorcism on these clients. Dr. Peck wrote a, a, another book called Glimpses of the Devil, in which Peck returned to this dark chapter. In this book, he shares how he moved from skeptic to believer to demonic realities, offering a full account of clinical cases that made him a believer, as well as one dabbling in exorcism. He, he videotaped exorcisms, uh, dialogued and scientifically documented these things. Uh, this book, in fact, is a case report of two women who underwent exorcisms in the 1980s. Jersey Babcock, a Connecticut mother in her late 20s, and Rebecca Armitage, a 45-year-old multimillionaire from the Big Apple. One exorcism was successful and one was not. Dr. Peck documents how during exorcisms, the women's faces turned hideous shapes, patients displayed immense physical strength, snake-like pythoness phenomenon. Demons spoke to the exorcist uh, uh, th through th their possession. Would, you know, he could actually talk to them. Just a few years ago, there was a movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, it captured people's attention because it was retelling an actual historical case with Annalise Michael, who was a German woman who suffered from demon possession since her late teens. Her symptoms were very dark, dark and deranged. I care not to repeat them here. But this particular account of demonization ended in the death, in the death of Annalise. It's a very jarring account. A few years ago, the new Oxford Review had a medical doctor, Richard Gallagher, who documented a case of demon possession, board-certified psychiatrist, associate professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. He, he went on to be on faculty at, at Columbia. A smart guy, smart guy. He graduated Phi Beta captive from Princeton University, trained in psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. In, in this case, Dr. Gallagher documented a woman with a long history in satanic groups who would go into a trance, levitate, have foreign voices come out of her speaking unknown languages to the patient and would cause objects to fly off the shelves without touching them. Psychokinesis. He records in his medical report, and I, and I quote, she commonly reported information about relatives, household composition, family deaths, illnesses, etc. of members of our team. Like I said before, they watch, they learn things without ever having observed or been given information about them, he said. As an example, she knew the personality and precise manner of death, that is the exact type of cancer, of a relative of a team member that no one could have conceivably guessed. She once spoke about the strange behavior of some inexplicably frenzied animals beyond her direct observation. Though residing in another city, she commented, those cats really went berserk last night, didn't they? The morning after two cats in a team member's house uncharacteristically had violently attacked each other at 2 a.m. What's the point? I speak of Dr. Gallagher, I speak of Dr. Peck, two highly educated and esteemed physicians. 
as pop cultural examples as well, like Emily Rose, I speak of these to say to you, the phenomenon of the demonic is not something that is relegated to the biblical world. It is raging today, and the embassy is under fire, and you have to wake up. You have to take the authority that has been given to you and push back against this. And far too many Christians are abandoning embassies and looking for comfortable places to go to escape to escape the darkness. But we have been called and ordained and placed to be in the darkness, to offer deliverance for a world that is under the spell of the darkness. There's not time to read these verses for this point, this final point from Acts, the deliverance, chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. But if you look at it, I'll, I'll briefly summarize. God supernaturally del delivers Paul and Silas from their detention. The scene is ironic because the captors are actually the ones who are imprisoned, and the once freed prisoners are the ones who were freed even though they were in jail. You, you see, you put them in jail, but they were free. They were free in Christ. And the captors are the ones who are not free. And, and as you read the scene, they bring the gospel to their captors. Verse 30, we'll read a couple of verses. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The captors asked. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the household. And he took them that very hour and that night and washed their wounds and, and they baptized the whole house. And he brought them into his house, the captors, bring them into their house and they start feeding them and they're rejoicing greatly because they believed in God. This is revival. As the passage continues, the saints then use the injustice of their circumstance, which they humbly submitted to. They humbly submitted to. Mind you, Paul's a Roman. He humbly submitted to this injustice as an opportunity to share the gospel and encourage the embassy. Rather than doing the things we see the church in the West doing today, when our government does something we don't like, we pout, we play the victim card, we virtue signal about, oh, this is unfair. The biblical church allowed itself to be beaten, turned the other cheek on the darkness so that it could turn around and use it to escape people from the darkness, to bring them to safety in the embassy. Jesus taught his disciples this. You turn the other cheek. You take the beating. You let them oppress you. You let them do that to you. And you use that suffering for sake of gospel witness. Unlike moderns and really unlike the kingdom of darkness that hates to suffer, the church embraced suffering for sake of Christ and the mission field that Christ had given them. Let me land the plane here. We have went from the spiritual conflict, the saints' charge, now some sobering conclusions. The first point that I want to give you out of, out of three as we conclude is it's time to get serious. We've been talking about the biblical language of ambassadorship, related imagery of being an embassy. We've been studying what it means to be spiritual immigrants representing a foreign kingdom. And, and today I focused on the dimension of how the embassy is under fire, these, these dark forces that are all around us. And, and we need to get serious about this. Colossians, I referenced it earlier, chapter 2, verse 15, speaks of how Christ disarmed the rulers, made a public display of them, triumphed over them. Jesus punked the darkness at the cross of Calvary. He punked the darkness in His ministry, and He invites His disciples to follow suit. He's disarmed the enemy, and He's armed His people. He took the teeth out of the lion and invites his disciples to go hunt down that toothless beast in the wilderness. In Acts, we see in verse 18 uh, how, how Paul uh, you know, approached the darkness. We see how, how he, he invokes Christ and the darkness comes out. We saw the wording there. He's, he's annoyed. He's greatly annoyed, the text says. The word that is used there in the original Greek is uh, diapone, oh my. It, it literally means to get mad at. It is time, it is time for the church, it is time for the church to get serious and to get mad at this darkness. It's time for us to look at this and have some Apostle Paul in us and, and be irked by this stuff. Get angry at this stuff. You see, you see what's going on, you see demonic stuff in the culture. Children mutilating their bodies to, to so-called change their gender and what you see dark stuff going on. Who do you think's behind this stuff? 
And, and so often, we, we get irked at whatever the, the politicians, you know, this, these people are doing this goofy stuff, and we, gotta, you know, we get mad at the, the political dimension, forgetting the spiritual dimension that we actually have authority over, and we need to walk like it. We have a tendency to be afraid of the darkness. We have a tendency to ignore the darkness. If a demon entered most Christian homes, it would be undetected. And if it encountered, it would be avoided. It is time to stare down the darkness. It is time to invoke the name of Jesus and expel out spirits that oppress and destroy those we love. While theologically I affirm that Christians cannot be possessed by demons or unclean spirits since they are possessed by the Holy Spirit, I'm afraid that many think because we have the Spirit that we're somehow immune from attack. The truth is we can still be oppressed externally by the darkness. Internally, our soul has been inhabited by the Spirit, but we still live in a world that is inhabited by demons and darkness and a prince of demons, Beelzebub. But Jesus is our strong man who has overpowered his house, and he is our big brother who protects us on the playground from these bullies. Right now, our country is in turmoil. Uh, there's fear of the state of economy, the price of gas, and all sorts of things. It's, it's scary, at, you know, depending where your mind is and when you're looking at stuff. But, it, but, but the reason, at least one of the major reasons we're in a mess as a, as a country is due to our sheer materialism in our culture, our selfish pursuit of stuff at the expense of the well-being of others. It has been said that we have more empty guest rooms in America than we have homeless. And the point is, people live for themselves, their goals, their purposes, their whatever. We get all we can, we can all we get, we sit on the can. And part of, of, of this message for today is to see, look, we need to, we need to get serious about the darkness, and we also need to let go of our stuff. We may think that it's just buying what we need, but the fact is, we don't need it. We can live without it. We, we, you, 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 you fill up your house with a lot of stuff that you don't need. Materialism blurs our vision. The, the consumerist American dream, our cars, our houses, our homes, our clothes, the things that we tell ourselves we need. And woven into this, the kingdom of darkness uses it, uses it to get ambassadors into obesity and, and, and fatigued sitting on the couch. It's time for us to see that our, our, there's evil dimensions in our stuff. Where do you see this in the text, Matt? Well, I'm glad you asked. Acts 16, 19. Her master saw that their hope for profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace because of that. Their hope for making money had gone out of her. That, that is evidence this was not mere fortune-telling. It wasn't trick. It wasn't gimmick. It was a real demon, and they knew it. Think of the oppression in this passage. It's a young girl. The most vulnerable in the culture. You should be protecting her. You're pimping out a young girl. She's said to be a slave. These are human traffickers using her for money. They subject her to darkness so they can make a buck. It makes me think, even today, human trafficking is larger than it has ever been in the world and in our economy today. Our coffees, our chocolates, our clothes, child labor, slavery... Demons and darkness are still involved in this, and it needs to be exposed. All right, final point. We need to love God in our suffering. In this passage, we saw the disciples suffer for Jesus. They could have avoided the whole thing. They could have kept their mouths shut. They, they, they could have run. They could have hid. They could have, oh, this is too hard. They could have gotten out of there. They were beaten, and they took the beating. It, it, it's illegal for a Roman citizen to be beaten before uh, imprisonment before a trial. And Paul's a Roman citizen. He could have invoked his citizenship, but he didn't. He didn't. L later on he does, and, and, and he uses that as a door for ministry. But he embraced suffering in order to lead others to Jesus. This is countercultural for us today. It is not normal to suffer in this, in this manner for a message over, over news, right? But they suffered for it, and it raises the question for us, are we willing to suffer for the gospel in the city of Los Angeles, in California, in this place we call America? Are we willing to suffer for the gospel to the ends of the earth? You know, to get a message out into the world, it requires suffering and sacrifice. People pay to get their messages on Google. Those 
goofy, weird algorithms, right? You want to buy this. You want to buy this. I actually do. How do you know that, right? People are spending money to get that message out for, for you to hear it. It costs. It costs. And we need to embrace that cost as ambassadors for sake of the gospel. And we need to see the joy and the honor that we have in suffering for Christ. They were beaten for their faith, and they saw that as, as joy. There's a joy to suffer for the one who suffered for us on the cross of Calvary. And so as we uh, come now to worship, as we come now to the table, as we come to the table, we have before us the bread and the cup, and we think of how He suffered for us. Uh, the, the Bible tells us He did it for the joy set before Him. He, he hung on the cross, impaled on the cross in, in utter joy. When life seems hard, when we start the oh, woe is me stuff, we, 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 we start you know, just feeling sorry about ourselves and, and, and the rest. The cross and, and the gospel are what are going to shake us out, out of all of this. Sharing the gospel to this world that is in need. It begins here with us. So as we come to the table, let us seek the Lord in repentance and faith. Let us open our mouths and our hearts in and, and song. Let us seek Him and, and, and have Him open our eyes to make us aware not just of the darkness and, and that we're under fire, but also of the victory that we have in Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for Your Gospel that calls us to the Son. And Lord, now as we come to the table, the sacred meal that Your Son offered to His church, we pray, O oh God, that You would work through the symbols and through the word preached today to draw us in repentance and faith. We see that we are Your embassy. And, and like any embassy, uh, there's a lunch break and ambassadors come together and have a meal on that lunch break. And so now we come to this meal as your ambassadors, and Lord, we, we, we seek that you would move through it to give us your grace, to show us our sin, to, to gently uh, 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 call us to repentance, to open our eyes to see things that we otherwise would not see. Lord, have your way in the close of the service as we come to the table and we sing praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.